The Apostle Paul explained love to the Corinthians when he wrote these words. The words will be on the screen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In this amazing section of Scripture, Paul was, as always, um, writing with a a point in mind, writing with an agenda, a particular context that he was dealing with. And in this case, it's a context that fits our series. God's people needed to accept and celebrate the manifold gifts that he had bestowed upon his church. However, and as is often the case, the Corinthians accepted and celebrated only those gifts that they understood. Uh, This is something that we do today. Toward the end of Paul's teaching, though, he says that he wants to show the Corinthians a more excellent way. In the midst of diverse gifts, in the midst of confusion and chaos, he wants to show them a more excellent way. And that way was the way of love. What was more excellent than the gifting of each individual was the love that would bind all of those individuals together as difference. Hear me again, church. What was more excellent than the giftings that each individual possessed was the love that was to bind those individuals together, no matter what their gift was. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that when they couldn't see or understand what God had for them, that they were to practice love for one another in the meantime uh, and throughout, right? But not just any love. The love that they were supposed to uh, display towards one another was a love that manifests itself through patience, through kindness, a love that manifests itself in humility, and it was a love with an unfailing quality. It's a love that never ends. This is the same love that we are to show one another if we really want to preserve the unity that we're called to in the body of Christ. Our series, as you know, is all about how to live united while celebrating the difference among us. It's about learning how to preserve God's world-changing social experiment. By the way, that's the church. It's about learning what it means to bring unlikes and difference to the same table, literally the same table today in our case, and to share life with a new kind of family. It's all about recognizing that when we do this, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are supposed to be. That's what happens when we do what God has asked us to do. Author and teacher Scott McKnight said that the first thing you will see when grace takes over a person's life is a life that is shaped by love. He goes on to remind us that the challenge is to establish a grace-centered and grace creating fellowship of difference. But a Christian life shaped for that kind of fellowship is going to require not only grace, but also love. So we need both, right? We need both. We need grace and we need love. Amen? We, we can talk about grace and we need to understand that more. And we did talk about grace last week. We'll continue to grow in that. But today we're just going to focus our attention on love. And the conversations that we're going to have around the table are going to be governed by that kind of love and charity for one another. Uh, 
I do, however, have to give a disclaimer before we start off talking about love, and that is this. Love cannot be defined by the dictionary. If you didn't know this, that's not how dictionaries work anyway. Dictionaries are formed based on common meanings of things over time, which means we give the meaning to the dictionary. The dictionary doesn't give meaning to us, right? So you can't, you can't find out what love means by looking in the dictionary. I would go even further and say that you can't even fully express love by exclaiming all of its component parts found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, kind, right? All of those things. There are two main reasons why you can't even uh, focus on or you can't define love fully from 1 Corinthians 13. Hear what I said, you can't define it fully. You can define it from there, but not fully, and here's why. Paul, first, Paul is only dealing with agape love in this passage. Besides uh, agape or charity kind of love, there are three other kinds of love that the Greeks understood. There is storge, which is an affectionate kind of love. There is philia, which is a friendship love. There is, uh, lastly, eros, which is the type of love that one has for their beloved. This is a love that you have for that, that person in your life that you love dearly. Paul doesn't appear even to address these concepts when he's talking about this. Uh, but we have to ask the question, are Christians supposed to love each other in these different kinds of manners? Trust me when I say that's a fascinating uh, question to pursue. But the first reason why Paul why you can't define it is because Paul is using agape only. The second, each component that Paul lists concerning agape requires a fuller understanding of what it looks like. Uh, all of this within a Christian worldview. For example, love is patient. Do you know how many different definitions people have of patience? They tell you they're patient. And then they're not, right? So patience must be understood through the lens of what does God say patience looks like. It's also important to understand why patience was needed within Paul's context. Spiritual gifts and their application within the greater body. Why does he say love is patient to a bunch of people who he's explaining gifts to? Because they needed patience for one another. These and other issues are, core, are essential if we're going to discover truly what love is. So in preparation for uh, today's message uh, and the idea of a pancake breakfast firmly planted in my head, uh, Steph and I were brainstorming this, this series and a specific direction that I wanted to take when it came to the tables. And with all of us sitting together, I wanted to find out what way we could, what we could do to reveal how truly different we are. What questions could we ask? Uh, what charades could we play? What form of Pictionary are you interested in? No, we're not going to do that. But how can we display how different we are? And then, no matter how many differences come to the fore here, we would learn how to love each other and preserve unity through it. So I proposed some common yet controversial topics for table discussion. I suggested that everyone be forthcoming about their political affiliation and their positions on specific hot-button issues. I thought that was a great way to do it. Confession, I like burning things down, okay? So that's just me, but this, of course, wouldn't serve our end, which is to preserve unity, right? And so Steph said something to me in response that gave me pause and then completely opened my mind uh, and put me in overdrive. After she laughed at me, 
because that's the fact of the, of the partnership there. After she laughed at me and told me that those questions were not good for achieving the goal, she simply said this. She said, people don't usually start their conversations or relationships around points of disagreement, Nathan. Darn. I don't like that. But anyway, so that one line, right? That one line is what took it uh, all the way. When we meet someone for the first time, we don't introduce ourselves based on where we stand on controversial issues, do we? If you do, stop it, okay? <laughs> I'm just letting you know it's not, not going to work. Instead, what we do is we actually focus on the human being in front of us, don't we? We see the person that's sitting across the table from us. We get to know them. We take time to listen to their story. Hopefully, we develop a rapport with the person. We're all complex creatures, and what makes us who we are goes far beyond a list of positions that we take or ideas that we hold. But, listen to me, church, if and when we reduce one another to those few line items, we actually dehumanize each other. What? We dehumanize one another. What do I mean? We remove the person from the relationship and we replace them with a series of propositional truths. Nathan believes X, Y, and Z and I can't be a friend of Nathan's. This becomes an easy way, by the way, of writing people off. And here's where the church needs to listen very clearly. We are incredibly guilty of this. We do this nonstop, not merely with outsiders, church. We do this amongst ourselves all the time. We draw our theological lines in the sand, and if you are on the right side of that line, you might be able to sit with me. You might be united with me, but heaven forbid someone be on the wrong side, because the second that happens, we're going to start one more of the 40 billion denominations that the world has. The problem is that this isn't love, church. At least it's not love for human beings. It's love for ideas. It's love for points and topics and stuff like that. But it's not love for people. Consequently, it's not unity. It's only an attempt at uniformity. Would we do this with our kids? Would you do this with your kids? The answer is absolutely not. The answer is even more important. You already don't do this with your kids. Think about this. You know your child. You love them. You love them unconditionally, no doubt. And when they come to you out of the blue with some crazy idea, with some crazy position they hold, or even with a strange lifestyle choice, whatever it is, what do you do? When it's your child on the line, when it's not Jane or John Doe that's uh, you know, on the news, you can't disassociate from your children. You might let them walk away from you, but you wouldn't walk away from them. They could have said or done the most ludicrous of things, but you'll still love them, don't you? Not in the church, though. I can't believe you hold to that opinion. See ya. I know that this isn't a perfect analogy because it doesn't take into consideration sin. It doesn't take into consideration challenges that we face in a, in a life pursuant of holiness. But my point is that love covers a multitude of things. And although we'd all do this for our kids within the church, when people don't see things our way exactly, we actually abandon one another. Not only that, we give excuses for why that's actually the noble thing to do. Well, I'm preserving truth here. I'm obviously closer to Jesus than they are. You guys know this to be true. And it's just sad. 
as we come to the table together today, as God intended us to, to do, and he is going to set us at a table in the great by and by, we have to come together understanding our difference and un- understanding that we are different and enjoying that, celebrating that, and fellowshipping within that. We have to show one another grace, and we have to show one another love. It might get uncomfortable, but it will bring us uh, the greatest good when we do. Can you turn to somebody next to you and say, this might get uncomfortable? Some of you might want to turn to the next person and say, it already got there. Anyway, right? This might get uncomfortable, but it's already there. But nonetheless, we are called to come together in love, in grace, in unity. I really love this quote from Scott McKnight. you got to hear this quote. Roman slaves and workshop owners were not used to sitting down at table and praying with Torah-observing Jews. Look at what else he says. And kosher Jews were not used to reading scripture with prostitutes or migrant workers. Yet Paul believed this was God's greatest vision for living. The fellowship and celebration of difference truly is God's design for his church. And in order for it to be done right, in order for unity to be preserved, we have to employ grace governed by love. This is God's kind of love. It's a love that, as 1 Corinthians uh, reminds us, is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. It's not looking for points of division, but it's looking for points of unity. Amen? I hope you guys have begun to have good conversations with one another, because that's absolutely what this is. It's just the start of a conversation. Uh, It's the start of a conversation that reveals... Again, the differences of the people that you come to church with. Just at our table alone, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about backgrounds, like family backgrounds that were from bo- broken backgrounds to, uh, to what we would call a classic or a traditional bla- background, a whole family, all of these backgrounds. And guess what? That informs the way you see family. It informs everything. We talked about religious upbringing. We're not completely done with that conversation, but religious upbringing. And guess what we found out? Our whole table is a mutt. We don't know where we came from. It's awesome, right? So this is great, though. This is great, though, because that actually is what most of us represent, uh, especially in non-denominational churches. Why do we need to know that? Because there's a lot of traditions and a lot of backgrounds and a lot of ideas that all of us have, that we don't necessarily hold to because we think Jesus did them, but we hold to them because that's what we grew up knowing. And it feels safe to us, right? What is that going to do for us when we have conversations about tough issues and doctrinal ideas? It should humble us a little bit and realize most of what I hold to, I was just raised with it. I should ask tough questions on whether or not it's true or good or helpful right? Questions like, uh, what's the one thing that you believed because of your upbringing, then you changed? Guess what, guys? I hope you guys are answering that question a million times over because I am convinced that the person who hasn't changed their mind in the past five years is dead, okay? Uh, There are all kinds of ways that our minds are changing and being shaped by truth and by a better understanding of who God is. 
The point of today, though, guys, is that this is what a fellowship of difference looks like. Do you think that the world would look at the church in this setup and be attracted to it? Do you think the world would look at the church in this context and be attracted to it? I think so. It seems to make sense. I mean, some of you guys eat with your mouth open, but, you know, but other than that, like, I think that they would, I think that they would, they would love to be a part of this. But what makes this different from sitting in rows and pointing, pointing forward all the time? We don't get to know each other. We don't hear each other's stories. We don't understand what real life is all about. We don't understand each other. And then guess what we do? We hear that one another hold to certain beliefs. And we won't even extend a branch to that person. Because we already know everything there is to know about that person. Why? Because we heard what they believed. That's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. At this table alone, just this table, it's so fascinating to hear what people believe, what their background was, what their family looked like, because I can hear right off the bat how ideas are informed in all of that. And it gives me a whole lot of grace because my ideas were formed in a bunch of stuff too. So this is what a fellowship of difference begins to look like. It means that no matter what those differences are, we're going to walk this life out together just as the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians to do. And again, here's what he told them to do. I'm going to show you a greater way, a more excellent way, and that is a way of love. Because love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It passes the syrup. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This kind of love is the love that doesn't fail. Amen, church?